0: Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law.
1: Welcome, dear listener. In this podcast, which I'm reliably informed is number 18 for those of you who like to count. This one is uh, an interesting one where international law meets contract law. So we're going out of our comfort zone a wee bit to think about international law. But anyway, this one is a topical one, I suppose. It's Ukraine and Law Debenture Trust Corporation, PLC, which quite recently made it to the Supreme Court on an appeal. Now, a wee bit of background information, but before I get there, I need to introduce my erstwhile colleagues and continued friends to Santier and Dr. Dodsworth. In fact, I should say Professor Sontier, I think. You have been promoted, have you not? I was going to say, yes. yes. So, I, I need to acknowledge that great height that you have reached. Promoted and moved to a different place, Cardiff University.
0: Not a sponsor yet. We're
1: well apart, yes. And the other thanks, the other word of thanks, is delighted still to be sponsored by Newcastle Law School. Very many thanks to them for sponsoring us. And also, Lister, you may have noticed over time that our uh, publishing, if that's the word, quality has been enhanced and that is largely due to the great efforts of Luke Gaskill, who we are dependent upon for the technological side, as it were thanks to both Newcastle Law School and to Luke. So that was a short digression. Now go back to Ukraine and Law Debenture Trust Corporation. It's just a bit of background to this. So Law Debenture Trust Corporation is an English registered company, which is why we're probably talking about this at all. It's a trustee company and was suing on behalf of the beneficiary. And here comes the topical bit. That is the Russian Federation. And they were seeking to recover an eye-watering 3 billion US dollars allegedly owed to the Russian Federation by Ukraine, that is, the sovereign state of Ukraine. And this agreement was not in the traditional, perhaps, sovereign debt arrangement between states that is merely dealt with on the international law plane, as it were. This one was reduced to an English contract. Now, the claim was a simple one for debt and the debenture trust, because the sums had not been repaid, since about 2015, I think, the Ukraine stopped paying. And so the debt claim was made against them. And it was proceeding. those of you interested in civil litigation on a summary judgment basis, which is the short, sharp shock, as it were. Give me judgment now, dear court, because there is no need for a full trial on this one. And at first instance, the trustee was successful. And that's why we've got an appeal first to the Court of Appeal, uh, which overturned uh, that decision and then further to the Supreme Court. So a permission to appeal to the Supreme Court was given on four issues, and I don't know how many of these we'll actually be looking at in in detail. Uh, The first issue was Ukraine denied that as a state it had capacity to enter into an arrangement of this nature, which would involve looking closely at the way in which Ukraine as a sovereign state functions, as it were, and, and the legal basis upon which it borrows. The second ground of appeal was that, uh, really in a fallback position, if we don't uh, succeed on the lack of state capacity, we then move to a second point to deny that our Minister of Finance had authority. So that's looking at the individuals signing the uh, agreement rather than the state itself. So they were trying to deny that the Minister of Finance had authority either express, implied or apparent. And then the third point, which is perhaps of particular interest to contract lawyers, was this point about duress. That is, if we fail on those first two, we've got a third argument here, and that is this arrangement was entered into because of duress, which is basically threat, that this is a threat which procures the other party to go into the contract. And I think the claim started being formulated on on the basis of economic duress, which is sort of a broad idea of commercial pressure. And then it became refined, I think, by the time we got to the Supreme Court to look not just at economic duress, but also duress of the person. So that's uh, physical threats of violence to someone or a, a body of people. Or alternatively, duress of goods. So you're threatening not a person, but someone's property. So that became, I suppose, the heart of the disputes before the Supreme Court. And then the fourth point was, I suppose, again, an international law point, this idea of countermeasures. And I'm not an international lawyer, but I just simply understand this as being a sort of lawful self-help Mechanism at an international law level, as it were. So uh, it was lawful for Ukraine on an international field to stop making the payments. So there were the four main arguments, and uh, really the Supreme Court were able to dispose with most of these with some ease. So the first one whether Ukraine as a sovereign state had capacity to enter into this arrangement. Supreme Court said, without doubt, it did. Sovereign state is something that is recognised by, in this instance, the UK executive, as having a legal status, and really it has the status as if it is a company, although it is not a company. So really, it probably stands in a, in a better position in terms of capacity than a, than a company. We're not interested in looking at articles of association. We just accept that the sovereign state has more or less unlimited capacity to do what it decides to do. So uh, Ukraine fails on that first ground. On the second ground agency, again, Ukraine has failed. The Supreme Court is able to see that there was clearly a holding out by the state that their Minister of Finance at the time had authority to enter into this transaction. And there was nothing to put the trust company on inquiry that there was anything uh, suspicious really about his authority. So again, second point, Ukraine has failed. So at the moment, it's not looking great for Ukraine in terms of defence here. We move to the third point about duress, you remember, and this had a number of strings to it. So economic duress. I think the Supreme Court has again confirmed what was said in Times Travel. And uh, some listeners may remember that we've tried to tackle Time's travel before. Economic duress is recognised by English law. That's the takeaway line, I think, from that case. But it is not a question of morality nor good faith. Severine's going to be upset now because I've mentioned good faith and that's her pet subject. It's, it's not about that. It's about this uh, perhaps difficult concept of unconscionable conduct unconscionability so it's a question of whether the threats are illegitimate and that is going to be very difficult to show in terms of economic duress and you've also got to be able to show not only the threat was made and that perhaps it was illegitimate but that you had no reasonable alternative but to give in to that that's going to make economic duress a very narrow gateway now, it's looking very gloomy for Ukraine. Those sitting in the court listening to this judgment, it's not going well thus far. But then a dogleg turn, as it were, Supreme Court says, ah, but hang on, you have refined your argument to talk about duress of the person and duress of goods. That is a different kettle of fish. That's my phrase, not the Supreme Court's phrase. Uh, duress of the goods... And duress of person, they're kind of like putting them together, aligning them, which is quite interesting. We might come back to that. But anyway, duress of the person. You don't have to show very much, basically, Ukraine. You have to show that threats were made and you don't have to show that you would not have entered into the agreement had those threats not been made. You don't even have to show that this was disadvantaged to you in some way because getting a loan looks advantageous in one sense. You don't even have to show that. You simply have to show that these threats were made and that they were in your mind at the time. And the Supreme Court is saying we have never had before to decide whether it is possible for duress of the person to be made against a state in, in a sense. But they're saying in principle, that's not a problem, because when we're talking about a state in this sense, we are looking at the individual human beings who are citizens and residents of Ukraine. And the state has a responsibility towards the safety and security of those individuals, whether they're members of their armed forces or whether they're simply ordinary citizens. It amounts to the same thing, I think, in this context. So any threat that would be perceived against human beings will sound as duress of the person. And furthermore, it will be for the trustee, Russian Federation, who has the burden of proof to show that these threats, if they were made, counted for nothing in the minds of the then Ukraine government. So on the duress point, Ukraine has at the moment succeeded. But remember, it's a summary judgment hearing. So we haven't had the full trial yet. What we've got is merely permission, if you like, to go forward with that argument. So Ukraine has succeeded And unless the Russian Federation caves in on this or some deal is done, and that may become very complicated because of the current sanctions, this will go forward to a trial on the duress of the person point and or duress of goods. And that final issue, those of you still listening to the fourth idea about countermeasures, this is an aspect, a feature of international law. And basically, the Supreme Court is saying international law operates on a different plane and that's the word they use from english contract law and really we don't get into that so uh, unsuccessful on the countermeasures point so of the four ukraine have permission to go ahead to a trial and defend their position on the duress point and more than that the trustee aka the russian federation will have their work cut out i think in showing a that these threats were not made and counted for nothing so i've taken rather a long time because there's quite a lot of uh, legal issues in that i now throw it open to uh, my friends here to tell me oh, all of that is completely wrong and the supreme court have gone completely mad on this or uh, any other thoughts that come to mind i don't know which one of you would like to bat first if that's the correct phrase
0: I think the podcast is over. I could listen to oh, you, yeah. Maggie. For, I'm, I'm just reminded that, that this is, yeah, I haven't heard you lecture in a while. And, and this is just one of those examples. where, yes, I could just sit here and listen to you. So yeah, shall we call it a day here? And That's it.
1: I'm conscious of speaking very quickly because <laughs> I'm looking at the timer and thinking, oh, Crikey, Moses! I have been speaking for ten minutes. This can't be right. And then I just get quicker and quicker and quicker. But it's it's quite a lot of law in this. In my defence,
2: so what do you think? I don't know. What, what do you? Reckon? I can't comment on international. I'm not an international lawyer, so I would not dare to say that the Supreme Court has got it wrong. Far from it. I think we mustn't forget that this is an interim judgment. Maybe it is possible that the parties are going to settle. I don't know when it's going to happen. I think perhaps now. I mean, it's taken an awful long time actually because it all started before the invasion of Ukraine so the yes
1: it was all around the time of the annexation if that's the right word of Crimea so we're actually going back to 2013 up to 2015 I think was the last payment that Ukraine made yes Um, yes
2: yeah so it's all you know that that was not commented upon, and it was made clear that that was not an issue here. But so, yes, what happens for me is important, and I don't know whether we will know formally whether the parties have settled. But the timeline being quite long, and of course, the events having caught up with it, I, I think that's also important. So, it's quite a difficult judgment. To read, it's been, I don't mind admitting that it's taken me a little bit longer to comprehend and, you know, because of the international element, which even though I'm not going to comment on it, it's of course highly relevant. So for me, the question is, I got really interested and my interest sparked by the comment on the first ground of economic duress and how it was disposed of, and the whole discussion about whether it is, you talked about moral, Maggie, but you know, the comment which was referred to back to the time's travel, morally and socially acceptable, for me that is an interesting point. And of course we've got Lord Carnwath who is dissenting on that. So I think that is an interesting point. The, the majority made it clear that it's not up to the court to decide what is morally or socially acceptable.
1: No, but I think Lord Carnworth is saying legal standards of international law would be relevant to the question of whether it was illegitimate or not. So I think he, out of all of them, is less minded to see English contract law and international law in hermetically sealed separate containers, as it were. He can see leakage, as it were, between the two. So what's happening on an international level is relevant for this question of illegitimacy.
2: Yes, because Lord Canworth does dissent on the point of the Supreme Court separating the economic duress from the Duress to the groups, and I
1: think he, out of all of them, would have been uh, the gateway would have been wider uh, for him, as it were, uh, on the duress point.
2: Yes, even though actually his judgment wasn't that long.
1: Well, he agreed with most.
2: He agreed with most, but I guess on the distinction, after criticising majority for separating the two, for him it would have been, they shouldn't have been separated, especially as he did make the point that the majority, even though they separated the two, then they seem to merge them back in assessing the economic pressure is not completely irrelevant since uh, it's going to be taken into consideration to assess in the second element. So I think maybe there is something perhaps more that could have been done.
1: The majority have been very keen I suppose to stress that sort of sanctions and economic pressure between states... Yes... Has never been, as far as the English law is concerned, has never been something that you could uh, scrutinise and challenge as yeah. being illegitimate or yeah. not. A point might be made, that I think has been made by by other podcasters, that the Empire and England has a long history, yes. if you like, <laughs> of bad behaviour, one one might say, morally and socially, if we take it out of its historical context through time in terms of applying pressure. And I think the Supreme Court are recognising, aren't they, that that states do apply pressure to one another, which I suppose if was happening between two individuals might not be acceptable. But what's happening between states seems to be judged in a different way and the supreme court here don't want to get into that argument at all they want to just look at english contract law and the very clear rules insofar as they are clear i suppose uh, that we have domestically yeah yes
0: i'm going to shock everyone now by saying i i I actually agree with the judgment oh bravo uh... <laughs> um, <clears throat> there are a few little bits that I'd like to bring, up, but I, I do like that we've started with Lord Carmel's dissenting judgment because I do think, at least on summary judgment, because it, it's not whether was then a threat or whether it was illegitimate behaviour. All he is saying is we should we are assessing whether it could potentially be assessed for that. So, do legal standards of behaviour feed into? an assessment of illegitimacy if those legal standards of behaviour are simply measured at an international rather than national. And I haven't made up my mind there because I was fairly convinced after reading the majority. And then I must admit that seed of doubt that Lord Carnworth has planted is, is growing on me that there is an objective measure of An expectation of behaviour, and it would have been interesting to hear in the actual judgment then, when there actually is a decision, to what extent that behaviour, whether whether it amounts to being illegitimate or not, would then be for that judgment. But for them to at least have a look at it, that would have been interesting. So
1: So I think what you're saying, tell me if I'm wrong, is that it's a bit of a cop out, in a sense, to simply say international law is an entirely different thing, and we're not even going to look at it in terms of whether that is illegitimate behaviour. and I think it's Lord Carnworth who's saying it's crazy, isn't it? Because if something offends international law, we should be taking it into account in determining whether this is illegitimate or not. I mean, that's a, quite a powerful thought, isn't
0: it? Ab- absolutely. Yes. And I, I think actually in the majority judgment, it's quite interesting that they don't entirely exclude international law. What they say is international law is restricted by domestic law. So we're not saying that international law can't at all be taken into account. What we're saying is it's restricted in in this domain by international law. I think that's that paragraph 204 where they make that point, which is quite interesting. I think that is what Lord Carnworth is actually jumping on in this. So for me, there is enough doubt there that I would have said that that should have probably been decided in the real case, as it were, not just at summary level. And on the other points, there's one or two moments within the judgment where I thought the phrasing is a little bit odd. But I think we'll probably finish off with the countermeasures point and then get on to the others.
1: The countermeasures thing is that pure international law. And I think yes. that, uh, probably the majority have decided that they've given sufficient yeah. for trial. And again, it, it amounts to the same sort of argument, the extent to which international law is relevant where you have issues and disputes of a pure contractual nature and they're effectively saying international law is a different thing it's not appropriate to look at international law when what the issues are are really contractual right yeah yes
0: i think we agreed on that one. yeah <laughs> Swift, <laughs> we can, check, we can that one off moving on okay <laughs> <Move> on.
1: yay <laughs> read <laughs> read the room team read the room move on There was very little said about duress of goods other than the Supreme Court now seemed to be aligning duress of goods very closely with duress of the person and I don't know about you but I've always felt that duress of the goods probably has become subsumed by economic duress but I don't think we can now say that that there wasn't a great deal of discussion about duress of the goods in this in fairness so I don't think we could probably say that this has been put to bed but they they seem to be saying duress of the goods is always illegitimate and therefore is treated in the same way as duress to the person rather than putting duress of goods into the camp of economic duress which would make it harder to prove if you were the claimant unhappy with, with these threats about your goods. But I suppose this reflects a sort of conservative with a small c uh, view that English law tends to have about property to a, an English lawyer is, is a strong thing. So any attacks on property is viewed very seriously. And so you can see why goods are being treated in the same way as people here. Whereas perhaps logically, you might think of goods as just being a particular aspect of economic. But no, it appears not.
0: It takes me back to a discussion we had many years ago, I think, about the idea about animals as, as, as property.
1: Yes, yes, yes.
0: And aligning those up and, and this this strong idea of property feeding into that. So I, I can see how we might arrive at the idea that the property is almost akin to the person in terms of duress. But you can also see how it really aligns with economic duress in the, in the sense that if someone is threatening your, your goods or your property, it's fairly easy for you to ask, well, did you have another option open to you? Or did it really matter that your 200 contract law Pool textbooks were being held in the harbour?
1: But that does not appear to be a legitimate question to ask of the Well, quite,
0: yeah. Whereas if we'd seen it as economic duress, then that would be, of course, a legitimate question to ask. Could you you simply order another 200 from a different source and let those go up in flames and then...
1: No, so property is a a special thing, as it were, (laughs) yes.
0: And that definitely... I I would say this underlines that, although I agree logically it, it doesn't. Although, on the pet point of view, it probably makes sense. Someone's beginning to threat your... Cat or dog or donkey.
1: Well, I suppose that one, if you remember, was looking at the Consumer Rights Act.
0: Yes. And and that
1: uses the word goods. Yes. So it's the sort of idea of what is good, Hmm. includes anything that you own. And so technically that, that would be. The other interesting thing I picked up, I don't know what you think about this, is that at some point, even if the duress claim succeeds there would be a further argument about restitution or unjust enrichment as we might say now because ukraine has had 3 billion us dollars and has not repaid this but i was wondering you know whether this is in part a, a tactic to delay the dealing of this whole thing until after the invasion of ukraine as as hopefully been resolved and then the question then becomes international law again i think uh, and and the idea of reparations uh, whether the russian federation will ever be called upon to make reparations and and if so those reparations would likely be far Not far said. greater than the debt that is currently being claimed
0: yes i think the only thought the thing i was thinking of in that respect is what would the terms be in in restitution Restitutionary terms, because you're still going to have to pay interest on it, or you would still have to pay interest on it. But I, I suppose if you can set that off against any probably pretty high reparation payments, that that's great because they've got the money now; it's in their pocket right now, isn't it? And that that counts for something. So I'm not sure that the terms or, or what they would have to pay, say, if no reparation was required, would probably be fairly simple. I know that they're claiming that these owners on unusual terms, but they're probably not far off what they would have to pay anyway, just not immediately, so I think a lot comes down to time. That was a long way of saying, yes, Maggie, I agree yes. with
1: you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'll take that I, I i'm not I'm not fussy,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and I hadn't picked a top on that aspect actually, so yes, that like, Maggie's not fussy, no <laughs> no. No, on on the point
1: that Maggie raised. Usually I am, of course, so I'm speaking with folk
0: tongue. I I think on the duress to person, it's really interesting because for for most of the judgment as I was reading it, my mind automatically went, but this this has to be duress to to person. You know, if if we've established at the beginning the capacity and all that element, it it seemed to me. And then finally they got to that point and you think, wow, you, you took an awful long time to get to that point. I would have probably addressed it... The other way around. I would have done the U.S. person point first and then gone on to uh, economic U.S. Um, I don't know about you, whether you had that in your mind the yeah, whole time.
1: You need, need to also stop and think about when these proceedings were begun. The Court of Appeal is 2018. Mm. So that's well before, obviously, the invasion. But yes. post Crimea. Yeah. First instance, maybe a couple of years before that, I haven't tracked the date of that, but it may be that that was not in the forefront of the draftsman's mind at that point.
2: Mm. The international settings, also completely different. There was a clear division of opinion in relation to how to deal with the Crimean one, so
1: maybe that is. Something which is relevant, I think you're right though that whoever was giving instructions to uh, Ukraine's solicitors and counsel when this began, you would have thought it would have been had there been threats made uh, of of a nature towards one's citizens and armed forces. It would have been mentioned then, so the fact that perhaps you you haven't originally claimed in that way well that might weaken your uh, your contentions now that there were threats because of course that's still going to have to be proven and will still have to be proven by Ukraine that threats were made by particular people in particular positions of authority you probably almost need verbatim if possible so that that may be difficult
0: but not an issue for here is it because that's an evidence question That would be for the main trial. Yes,
1: quite. So that's my point. Um, This is only the Supreme Court saying, in principle, duress of the person and duress of goods is an argument that Ukraine is permitted to use. That's all they're deciding. It'll still be for Ukraine to have to show that threats were made of a serious nature by people in authority in the Russian Federation or those speaking for them. Two people in authority in Ukraine, and ability to make decisions and be influenced by this. And then it will be for the trustee, a.k.a. the Russian Federation, to somehow show that those threats were not in the mind of the Ukrainian government at all, as at the time they entered into this trust deed. Never mind what happened afterwards. What's important is what happened at the time of that trust deed. Do, do you see what i'm saying it's it's the time then rather than knowing what's happened since but i suppose knowing what's happened since might be some way supportive of the perhaps the seriousness uh, in which the threats were taken in 2013 by the individuals concerned then you know they have, in a sense, they would say, "Well, we've been proven right. We took it seriously we then, were right. and, and look yeah. how things have panned yeah. out. Yeah. We were right to take it seriously then." Uh, that's mm. probably, I would think, the most that one can say. Um, and, and if you look at the judgment, Supreme Court are very careful to say we've not been asked to consider no. events after 2019. We're only looking at the events prior to that, yeah, and that I think, right. strictly speaking, that that must be right. Because uh, it's what happened as at 2013 when you signed this deal to borrow three billion US dollars from the Russian Federation rather than getting money from but Europe, also the, for example. But uh, also, you know, I
2: think from what I get from the judgment is that the duress to the goods and property was came in slightly later. And so I think from, Tim, when you said, you know, surely that should have come first, reading between the lines of the judgment, there seems to have been a question as to whether they were entitled to do that or whether that was a change of plea. So that was, you know, somewhat smoothed over. So maybe they got rid of the easy argument. This one was the more meaty one and maybe that is why it is, or that would explain why it is the successful one. So there are... The difficulty, I guess, for the Supreme Court is indeed to try to remain partial, is perhaps the wrong word, but to remain objective precisely in assessing things as they arose at the time, not to take into... That's the job of
1: of a judge, and I don't don't think uh, intellectually uh, they have any difficulty with that. I, I suppose, in fairness to Ukraine or Ukraine's lawyers... Um, I can't remember the date of time's travel, but, um, you know, the law has changed in terms of guidance throughout this period. So when this started, uh, 2018, 2017, I don't know, this was before uh, we've got any clarification about the narrowness of economic duress. So perhaps when they started, economic duress looked to be a wider You know, the goalposts have changed through time.
2: Yes, and that is actually one of the reasons, I can't remember where in Lord Reed's judgment it is said, but it is one of the reasons why appeal was granted precisely because the law has moved on since then that it is allowed to go to trial because it is important uh, well
1: and also it's an entirely novel point isn't it english law has yeah. not previously yeah. been asked to no. consider whether duress of the person and or goods is uh, yeah. uh, available as between states in effect uh, so so this is a new bit of law. Um, and previously, I yeah. mean, students will remember we don't get many cases in English law about duress of the person. Most uh, students know about the Australian case that came to us. Yes. Uh, to the Privy Council of Barton and Armstrong, yeah. where you've got yeah. two wide boy businessmen threatening uh, to break one another's legs or, or kill somebody—that's yeah. um, the—that's the sort of not exactly run of the mill, uh, but but no. that's the. <laughs> <laughs> a simple tale of ordinary everyday folk, <laughs> as one might say that's the sort of you know storyline that i suppose people would make up for soap operas on the television but that that was the real case but it was 1976 77 so we don't we don't get many cases so, so this is a novel uh, in, in in the sense of two states but also not not so many cases about duress of the person so that might be another reason why it warrants Supreme Court looking at it. Yes I think so I th- that's what
2: I got from the decision as well that you know things have moved on and you know time's travel was you know of course mentioned quite a lot in and, and therefore agreeing with it and reiteri- reiterating that the, the law is different and therefore that is why that needs to be looked at so yes but whether the parties will settle
0: and on that note ah i have no segue this time at all so i'm just going to jump right in newcastle law school provides genuine research led teaching so you can explore contemporary legal issues taught by experts in their fields learn more about their international commercial law llm or international and global challenges llm by visiting ncl.ac.uk Thank you, Newcastle Law School, for sponsoring us here at Unpacking Contract Law.
1: So there's a mention of international law. In other words, you could be looking at international law with an LLM at Newcastle.
0: See, I should have let you do that. (laughs) I knew I should have let you do that. I had nothing there to do the segue. And then Maggie just takes it away. See, that's... (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about timing there. And I thought something was really interesting when we were talking about the agency or whether we're still at the beginning uh, discussing the agency point and namely uh-huh. what what they mentioned there is that Ukraine started paying the notes or started paying the interest. Now what, what struck me there was that normally in contract law of course we go back to the time the contract was made. Here we're looking at behavior following the contract being made in order to assess whether they had ostensible authority. I don't know whether we want to jump into the ostensible authority point first but it seemed to me that was odd that we could take into account behaviour after they'd entered into the contract. I
1: suppose on the agency point, that might be an argument either to support that your guy, the Minister of Finance, had authority, because if you felt he hadn't after the event, why the hell were you paying on this deal? It would undermine, I suppose, an argument as to lack of authority. I guess you could also try and say that uh, if he didn't have authority at the time, the fact that you took this contract on, as it were, and made payments under it, might go some way to show ratification.
0: That's better. Now, that's the argument that I was looking for. Not so much the first one. I don't find the first point you're making particularly convincing, because in contract, again, you don't have to act as if you're in a contract just for there to be a contract or not, it makes no difference down the line. The behaviour afterwards doesn't make, but the ratification point, I think, is a good one.
1: Yeah, but it would just, it would simply be evidence that you, you, the principal, we're saying now, the principal as in the state of Ukraine, um, had no difficulty with the idea of the authority because they enforced the agreement for a period of time. But I would have to disagree on the
2: ratification, because the point was made that the Minister of Finance did, ratification works from a different viewpoint of apparent uh, authority, because the when there is ratification, ostensible authority or apparent authority, it works, there is a representation which is made, and by the fact that there was nothing which was shown to put doubt into um, the Russian Federation as to whether the Minister of Finance had authority. Whilst with ratification, it would be the Minister of Finance taking upon himself to do something which he can't and then suddenly the Ukraine state you know, deciding, yeah, that's a good deal. No, the,
1: the agent can't ratify his own... No, no, no,
2: no, no, no. But ratification works that the agent does something which he doesn't have authority to do. And then yes. the at a later stage, yes. the principal thinks that it's a good idea. And so yes. it works as antecedent uh, yes. authority.
0: Yes,
1: yes. I don't disagree with that.
0: And that's the only behaviour in my mind that would work. But
1: no, because the... These are alternative arguments that's all so
0: here just just to just to turn that around so we would have the minister of finance entering this deal with without the authority ukraine then starts paying and that payment uh, the argument i think maggie if i've understood us correctly that payment would be seen then as the ratification yes. of, yes. of, of yes. the yes it would It would. That works for me. But
1: Um, I don't think we ever got into that argument because the Supreme Court was able to look at the holding out, as it were, the representations by the state in all their dealings with the debenture trust company, really to indicate the Minister of Finance has authority to do all of this. And so the authority point, I think, was quite easily disposed of both by the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court. So Supreme Court saying effectively what the Court of Appeal said on that, I think. There has been authority.
0: Yes, that worked along the estoppel lines, doesn't yeah. it? There is stop from denying.
1: That, that I think, is how uh, theoretically one uh, rationalises apparent authority or sometimes called ostensible authority. Authority, Yeah, it's a form of Estoppel.
2: That is completely the case, yes. Rama Corporation, the the basis, it is Estoppel. It is a, an easier form of Estoppel than the one in contract because there is no need for the third party to show that there was a detriment. Entering into the contract is enough. But for me, the ratification wouldn't have worked because the two actions are completely different the ostensible authority is used by the third party to effectively for the argue that the principal has no choice but uh, because here the representation i mean you know in these discussion it seems really weird to me that the Minister of Finance, you know, wouldn't have authority. So but
0: it's not it's not that he doesn't have authority, he's limited yeah. in his authority.
1: Just to argue mm-hmm. against that, he might well have restricted actual authority. If it's not
2: communicated to the third party, that that is why apparent authority works so wonderfully well. Unless somebody had told listen, this is the Minister of Finance, but he's a puppet and really he doesn't he cannot do unless the third party knows. That's why we the the, the process of apparent authority is based on the representation yeah. so by yeah. you know ukraine has represented to uh you know the um, the russian federation that indeed the only person who can negotiate this is or one person who can negotiate this is uh, the minister of finance so. uh,
1: and not only negotiate whether he has authority to actually uh, sign it off as yeah. it were yes yeah yeah, yeah no i agree why won't ratification work as as an argument?
2: So, oh gosh, you're putting me on the spot <laughs> I was about to say yeah. you are you are the I mean,
0: expert.
1: I know. No, <laughs> no, 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 no! Don't put me as the expert because I I need to do a. Well, it was just that you said that you weren't you weren't really happy with uh, an argument about ratification. Ostensible
2: authority seemed to be a much better way. So. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I don't
1: argue with that. Yeah.
2: yeah, but also ratification is used by the principal to. It doesn't have
1: to, though, does it?
2: Oh, it What's can it? be used by. It? So hold on a minute. It can be used by. No, no, it is used by the principal. Rati- ratification is the principal realizing that, hold on a minute, uh, what the person has done is. What the agent has done with the authority. Is actually quite useful for us, so we're going to use it. So here, yes. if they were trying to argue that they had no authority, they would not be using ratification because they—they're they're the oh, one. All who right, made but you're argument. saying
1: ratification is only available to the yeah. principal, and and I'm arguing really—is uh, that so? Because surely a third party can say even if your chap did not have authority, actual or apparent you have yourself since ratified this arrangement. So now it's too late for you to change your tune, as it were, and blow hot and cold. That's what I'm saying might might have been possible as an argument, but we didn't get, as you say, we didn't get into that because the apparent authority point was more easily answered.
2: No, I would say because ratification is based on consent it tends to be used by the principal
1: yes but you're saying it's only available by the principal and i'm saying surely a third party can say on an objective basis you have effectively confirmed what your guy has done okay
2: so on that i will concede that it this is going to be Gosh, Tim, you're going to have to edit that out because here I I have a blank. No editing. So, on the question of what amounts to ratification, can silence or inaction amount to ratification? So, yes, I will concede that to you.
1: Silence might be tricky, I would have thought. I know, but like so, you, ratifi- you so the way ratification conduct. works...
0: But this wouldn't be silence. They would be acting on it. They're paying.
2: No, 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 no. But if... Yeah, if yeah, no. It's he, just that he, Severine am, said yeah, silence. That's, that's, yes, because... So, I am, I'm trying here to... Um, Go to Maggie's point. Can it be only used by the principal as a tool? So being put on the spot here, I am not entirely sure whether it can only be used by the principal or whether indeed it can be used by the third party to force to enforce the contract against the principal
1: you know without looking it up i i can't see why it should not be available no, no, no. So to a third party
2: here the only way i can think of is indeed the ratification is a unilateral act by the principal so the principal must be consciously Yes. wanting to ratify that's why I'm saying that it is it tends to be a tool which is used by the principal.
0: but that is still going to be measured objectively
2: I know but here the only person who would have ratified is Ukraine so therefore yeah. I don't see how ratification would be a tool would be better here because if Ukraine is saying a not having the minister didn't have authority it's
1: not in their interest to say or we've ratified Yeah, but
0: they, they're not the ones saying that. So
1: therefore... Yes, no, all I'm saying is that this is not an optional thing. One looks at objectively how you have yes, conducted so yourself. Yes, so therefore that
2: is why I, I think we are in agreement, but maybe I am not expressing uh, myself very, very clearly. So what are the elements to establish ratification? There must be a unilateral act by the principle because the principle can only ratify if either everything or nothing, he cannot pick and choose. And the principal can only ratify if he knows of the consequences of the ratification. However, so the question is to know what if indeed can we have implied ratification? So starting repaying would be something. But again, this is an unequivocal act. What about... Silence or yeah. doing nothing would that amount to ratification only if it can be seen that the principal knew so for me, ratification would be a difficult argument here, but I hadn't, but there thought... was more than
0: silence here, wasn't there? The ratification would yeah. be them paying the interest,
1: yeah, I think that would be objectively. Yeah conduct which looks like the state is quite happy with yes. this arrangement as at that time that that's the only point i'm making um but i don't think the supreme court no really got into that point it, it yeah. wasn't live i don't think okay
0: so on the on the ostensible authority and the connection to estoppel i mean it's quite interesting isn't it we start off with almost estoppel by acquiescence so allowing put putting the agent in that position in is giving that sense that he has authority to do that, but later on the argument then goes when we're talking about well they've had previous dealings in which they've um entered into similar deals that's almost moving to a kind of stopper by convention type situation or not you know i'm I'm t- drawing parallels here to to these this is obviously agency, but the theoretical underpinning if we're going to a stopper, would mean that we've got two different types of estoppel working in the background did you pick that
1: yeah estoppel by convention is where both parties to the transaction conduct themselves uh, objectively to manifesting their uh, understanding to one another Uh, and it might not be a true one in terms of facts but by convention as it were they both uh, carry on as if this thing is so as it were so it, it is a form of estoppel.
0: And that's similar here, right? We, we, you can see the parallels here.
1: Estoppel is, is, is outside contract law at all. It, yeah. It's it's equity. Yeah. All of the forms of estoppel are, are not really contract law at all. But these are all about representing yep. by words and conduct yep. one thing and then yep. trying to change your mind. That, that's yeah. what they have in so common, So here, isn't I it? mean,
2: all the cases on ostensible uh, stroke apparent authority have made it clear that, yeah. so your word Maggie, are very true, it is a form of estoppel, but it is absolutely clear that establishing yeah. agency, ostensible authority, even though it is recognized that estoppel is the legal basis upon which to effectively force the principal to perform something that he or she doesn't have, Uh, any intention to do, um, is not as stringently, the conditions for establishing uh, apparent authority are clearly not as stringently applied as other forms of uh, estoppel uh, in contract law. So it is indeed a form of estoppel, but it's not the same. And so I would be weary.
1: You know, I think the House of Lords certainly have said in the past that it's wrong to view estoppel as a single mm. concept. Yes, they are cousins if you like. They are in the same family. They might even be viewed as siblings, but they are not the yeah. same. No. I absolutely, absolutely agree
0: with that. Yes. Couldn't yeah. couldn't agree more.
1: Me too. Yes. Absolutely. But all I was saying is what the one thing I think they do have in common is is unequivocal behavior. on on an objective basis that leads someone to uh, think that your intentions are x uh, and then to stop you changing your mind there's the estoppel bit and uh, doing y
0: so on that basis it's
1: it's about going back on one's representations in a sense uh, one's behavior one's conduct but it's objective rather than subjective yes
0: and there's two things that that follow on from that one is To what extent it's then important that they knew that the authority was limited?
1: Who's they for a minute? The
0: Depensure Trust.
1: Okay. That they knew what?
0: The minister didn't have authority. So we could be talking about a situation in which they knew that he shouldn't really have authority, but that the representations were such that it seemed like they were saying, well, we're getting rid of that requirement. It's fine. Don't worry about that. That's a limitation, but it's not really a limitation. So that's a representation there. The other one would be, they talk a lot about the terms being onerous and unusual. And it seems to me that what they're trying to say with that is the more onerous and unusual the terms are, the more the other party is put on alert to then check that they have authority. Because... What a weird deal for that person to be entering into, even though the limitation is...
1: But didn't the Supreme Court, in this instance, say that these terms were not particularly onerous? So that argument actually didn't go anywhere, I think.
0: I'm not sure they were quite so clear about it. I think they were not onerous and unusual under the circumstances. And even if they were onerous and unusual, that was not sufficient for them to overcome the three hurdles. Right, So the yeah. fact that the CMU had a sensible authority seemed to override the over- onerous and unusual element. So the, the, the fact that Ukraine put the CMU into the position that they appeared to have authority overrode the onerous and unusual element.
1: Yeah, I think... Uh, well, were they trying to argue that these terms were so unusual that uh, no Minister of Finance... Uh, would have had authority actual or implied and because they were unusual terms that was an indicator to uh, the other party the debenture trust um that there wasn't apparent authority yeah yeah yes yeah. Yeah, so, as i say an indicator that there was a lacking yeah. uh, apparent authority but uh, I don't think it yeah, went the anywhere did it made, that argument
2: Tim has to be seen in light of uh, public policy surrounding apparent authority it is absolutely clear that apparent authority is a tool to be used by the third party and because it is absolutely clear that it is here to protect the interest of the third party um, there are there is discussion in the uh, agency surrounding to see whether in fact it's too easy for the third party to establish and so this whole discussion about at which point should the third party just say hold on a minute we might not know but we should just double check and then if we don't then the third party will not because the th- the the criteria for apparent authority is that the third party must believe that indeed the representation that the agent mm-hmm. has
1: authority is true and again remember objectively reasonably believe absolutely so this is this idea about being put on inquiry exactly. and if it's not sufficiently out of the norm yes. as it were then you would not
0: be put exactly. on exactly
2: exactly so at which yeah. point and the usual element is that in order to decide at which point should the third party start to think hold on a minute you know should I check that, is precisely, it all depends on this notion of usual authority. So would that be usual for an agent in that position? So
1: to, it's to also that, highly, I would say, facts sensitive absolutely. or facts specific. Absolutely, oh gosh, yes. Um, yeah. And that can't have a, a clearer guidance other than it would depend on the context as to whether someone was put on yeah. the inquiry.
2: So it is true that the, the balance between... The whole underlying reason for apparent authority is to protect the third party. However, of course, if that is always the um, important element which
1: is taken into consideration and checking, indeed, yes. it, well, it's it's not a blank check, it's not is a it? Blank this check. Idea no, no, of apparent no, no. authority. No. It, it's what is reasonable yeah. to have assumed yeah. on the representations yeah. that were made yeah. to you. I would say.
0: And that's the interesting point, isn't it, is that the onerous and unusual element is balanced against, for example, the CMU's ostensible authority that they then granted the minister the right to go ahead, which, of course, they couldn't because they never had that authority in the first place. Because it's a double ostensible authority, isn't it? It's, the, it's Parliament who really has the authority to give the finance minister the authority to act. They didn't. Yes. But they put the CMU in a position that they appeared that they had the authority to give that and the CMU actually appeared well and did give that authority, although they never had the authority to give that.
1: So, uh, so you are saying actually in in the chain of command, as it were, I think what you're saying is there were, were there two instances. That's, that's it. That's, that's the really
0: interesting part is, that, is yeah. that the CMU appears to give the minister authority, which they never could because they hadn't got that authority from parliament uh,
1: but the focus of attention i think as, as Severine has alluded to is really what the third party would reasonably exactly and so the yes can they
2: believe the representation and only if they can honestly believe the representation to be true will there be apparent authority and the if you have doubt can you say that you honestly believed it to be true if there was a little doubt in your mind and that's the checks and balances aren't there
1: there two things buried in this Uh, an honest belief is subjective so one is particularly asking what you genuinely thought but overlaid over that is an objective question As to what was a reasonable way of conducting yourself and responding to the representation. Yes, the honest belief is based
2: on objective uh, assessment of the
1: situation. I mean, I think we have to remember that Ukraine uh, were borrowing previously from the IMF and from a number of other sources. So so there's a sort of a, a history, if you like, that the state was borrowing and no one was questioning the authority to do that so it would be perhaps quite difficult in that context to suddenly question an authority to borrow from the law debenture trust corporation aka the Russian Federation
0: and this is where the whole by uh, conventionally type thing comes in is that and I know it's not but uh, the, the the parallel is being drawn here to <laughs> law Dependent trust uh, you know the, the the amount of times they've entered into deals with them as well on similar terms just not to this amount that behavior then comes around to create an expectation or create a a, to make the representation
1: okay but maybe the amount is an important different fact because uh, ukraine may be saying the minister of finance has authority but it is limited to uh, a certain number of billion for example And if you go over that, he doesn't have authority to do that. That might be an argument, uh, but that only deals with uh, actual authority. You've still got this problem round your neck about... Well, no, that still creates
0: a... So the fact that he's been allowed to enter into similar deals previously goes to the expectation that he may have authority, that it's reasonable to believe that he has authority.
1: OK, but, yes. but the point I'm making is about the, the size of the borrowing, tipped it into a different category of activity to which he did not have authority.
0: And that's where the ostensible, ostensible authority comes in, is, is the fact that the CMU then appeared to have authority yeah. to ratify that, which then is balanced yeah. against yeah. Yeah, the yeah. fact that it was onerous, and unusual, and the fact that the minister had entered into these previous dealings. So all of that is balanced against each other.
1: I mean, I, I don't know about this—the unusual onerous thing. Would, would that pan out to be useful to Ukraine vis-à-vis the Duras? But that's of not it? where
0: they brought it in. They, that was there. They yeah.
1: No, but uh, at trial, uh, because uh, at the moment okay. we're just talking about the principles, as it were. But the onerous, the onerous nature of the deal—if it was onerous. Might that be used as evidence by Ukraine at trial to to show an aspect, a factor in the duress? You know, not only were you twisting our arm up the small of our back, threatening all manner of things, but you're also screwing out of us terms that were wholly one-sided, go... as it were. I mean, you know, that might be an aspect of the duress. Is all I'm saying.
0: Would would that would that go to?
2: Would that not go more for economic duress rather than? Rest good.
1: well no I, you know the, the threat is if you don't sign this uh we will do xyz so it's all part of that picture as it were i mean there was a, one more interesting thing that now you've said this uh, makes me think of something else in but the ju-
0: just jumping in on that i think i think there's several what you were saying there's something there it, because the threat itself is for duress a person is enough but On the economic duress side, I think the point you were making there, Maggie, goes to whether they had another option. Isn't that evidence that we had no other option? Look at how onerous and unusual the terms were. It's quite obvious that we didn't have another option but to enter into them. Otherwise, I don't see how the onerous and unusual point could feature in duress. the,
1: The other option now, remember, is not relevant... For this trial, because it's proceeding on duress of the person, duress yeah, of that's good. What yeah. other yeah, exactly. option yeah. is is not relevant. Yeah. Had it been economic duress, yes. then yes, you would have to show um, uh, you no other option. But there that's was that's why in the judgment,
2: that's why I said when you raised that point, I, you know, that would be potentially relevant for economic duress, not for the point upon which they've been allowed to go to trial.
0: And that's what I was agreeing with.
1: Uh, Well, I don't know. Um, There's something in the judgment that says the the economic pressure is relevant as part of the combined strategy. So the Supreme Court is saying uh, the economic threat, although it is not a specific ground of complaint here, which is permitted by the court, it is relevant as part of the context. Ah, OK.
2: so I think Tim and I see it as part of a constituting element to assess whether the threat is illegitimate in relation to economic no. duress. But you are saying it in relation to the last point that the majority made that uh, the economic pressure, even though they only want the second point, economic pressure is not irrelevant. So that's how you conduct it. I think Tim and I have a slightly... we have. Victoria, I don't get that. Tim, so Tim... You and I, so when Maggie raised the point that she did, both of us reacted in the same way, unless I am mistaken as to your intention. And so please, you know, disagree. Objectively assessed. Both of yeah. Both of us seemed to not completely agree with you, Maggie, in the sense that okay. both of us only saw that in terms of that would be relevant if had what had been pleaded was economic duress as economic duress is not relevant yes. we could not see how the point that you've raised would be relevant but now i am um, now that you have further explained the onerous part of the term is what you consider the economic surrounding in the same way that on paragraph 196 the majority says we do not consider economic duress as being relevant however that is not to say that economic so you see it as a further element that there was economic pressure
1: which was applied onto it, Ukraine. it is just simply part of the background because there's um, but that's not part Supreme of the Court test, say, right? It's this... it, no, uh, hang on. The Supreme Court actually said if the economic threats accentuated the impact of the threats of violence, yes. that is a factor which strengthens and not weakens Ukraine's case. As Lord Cross said in Barton and Armstrong, and now he's quoting... If one man threatens another with unpleasant consequences, if he does not act in a particular way, he must take the risk that the impact of his threats may be accentuated by extraneous circumstances for which he is not responsible. A If he is indeed responsible for those circumstances, it should not be thought that it will be possible for the trustee to establish that economic pressure was the principal reason for Ukraine's decision. So I think what they're trying to say is, although this does not go to trial on economic duress, the economic duress, if it is established in a very general sense, the pressure, as it were, we shouldn't call it economic duress because it's not succeeded on that basis. But the, the general pressure in the background, including the terms and everything else, will be relevant evidence.
2: I think it's an interesting point. It's a really, really fine point. Because yes. the economic pressure that Russia was exerting was slightly yes. different, so I think it is an interesting point that you are making to as the surrounding but element that they was appreciate the illegitimacy of. Yes.
0: So that's the question that I have. Is I, I agree with you, Maggie. I, I I remember that part of the judgment as well. The question is, does that mean that it's, it's part of the test of whether the threat is illegitimate or is that part of the causation that meant that's why they entered into the deal?
1: I think if you had to put it any label, it would be part of the causation because what they're saying is the trustee will not be able to argue at trial that the reason your decision-making was all about the economic threats... They won't be able to make that argument. Why would that be relevant here? Because the burden of proof
2: is on the trustee that the threats had no part to play anyway. So...
1: so all the Supreme Court, I think, are trying to say is, at trial, trustee, uh, do not try and argue this away on the basis that the only reason that you went into this was because of economic pressure. And the Supreme Court has already decided that this economic pressure is not duress. Ergo, you have no uh, ground for complaint here. So the Supreme Court are trying to knock that away and and basically say the the economic pressure is in the minds of Ukraine, the state at the time. So we can't say it's irrelevant. And the fact that it's pressure coming from uh, the Russian Federation Whether it's illegitimate or legitimate doesn't actually matter now.
2: But in a way, separating the two, the economic pressure is one thing. Here, what we are saying is that a contract itself is awful. And so I can agree with you that the fact that the contract itself is just so awful, that is part of the surrounding circumstances, which... So that I agree, but the economic pressure, as we understand it, was external. That was all the things that Russia was doing to try to force them to go into that uh, agreement in the first place. So I would...
0: That's a good point.
1: Well, I think what I'm saying is you can't can't, uh, isolate particular things and put them into little boxes. Uh, I think the Supreme Court is saying the whole context will be relevant. For me... There are two
2: different things: the external economic pressure that uh, uh, war, that Ukraine was put under, and yeah. that's been filed away. Whether the <laughs> fact that the contract itself was so awful. Oh, here, you know, do we go about, you know, substantive fairness or uh, procedural No, no, fairness? no, we can't. We
1: can't. English law doesn't. Go I know. Down that that's road, why I'm it? putting yeah, it here yeah.
2: because what you seem no. to raise, you know, the contract itself no. is so awful. It's, you know, it's, it's so awful substantively. And indeed, contract, uh, English contract law doesn't deal with substantive fairness.
1: Uh, and I think we have to remember that at the time of these arrangements, Ukraine was heavily dependent on uh, export business with, with Russia. I, I think it was about a third of its exports yeah. at that time. I think that's the whole point. Uh, w- went to the Russian yeah. Federation. Yeah. So economically... They probably were over a barrel. And so when you talk about the terms being awful, uh, we don't know that. Actually, we don't really know what the terms were. But if they were heavily um, one-sided, that may be just a reflection of the economic muscle and relationship between uh, these two states and Ukraine being heavily dependent on Russia. And it was more or less take it or leave it basis. This is the deal. Uh, But the threat is, don't go anywhere else. You must borrow from us. If you go anywhere else, a.k.a. the EU, X, Y, Z, awful things will happen. There's the threat. So I think all the Supreme Court is saying is that you, at trial, all of this will be relevant evidence to look at the context and the economic pressure, even though today in this hearing we have decided that economic duress as a separate argument is not possible.
2: I partly agree with you. My only concern with this is there is a risk of conflating economic duress with what they've been allowed to go to trial for. There is there
0: is an argument there, though, which is to say that a normal threat to the person...
1: What's a normal threat? <laughs> or, or a,
0: a, a, a play-down threat, you know... Oh, wouldn't it be awful if your goods go up in flames? May be accentuated.
1: That's an implicit threat.
0: Okay, I'm going to set fire to your. This That's is going to go into the. This is going to go threat. into the the uh, description of this podcast, isn't it? If I set fire to your to your goods, may be accentuated as a threat. May become more of a threat because of the surrounding circumstances. So, because of the fact that they have nowhere else to go. In which case, it, yeah. well, it's less okay. about the causation there, it's more it features into the illegitimacy. It's increasing the threat or the level of the threat.
1: No, the Supreme Court has been very clear that threatening property and human beings is illegitimate. Quite, so stop, end that, of story. that was my
0: starting point. That was All my right. starting point on, so therefore, on what, why... what does the economic pressure do? But I can see that a more implicit threat yep. or a, a less aggressive threat would become accentuated because of the economic pressure that's also applied. So the combination of both makes it worse.
1: I, I don't think it matters whether it's explicit or implicit. Yeah. Uh, you're looking at the threat. And that's the and context. That's in what I mean there. Context. And I think all the Supreme Court, yes, all the Supreme Court is saying is the context will be relevant uh, when at trial we are someone is looking at uh, these threats. Yeah. So the economic context is is relevant. Uh, you can't trustee say, try and argue, uh, that the only reason why you entered into this arrangement, nothing to do with the threats, uh, it was pure ec- economic basis. I think kind of like the door's been shut on that argument. Yeah. Sounds like an agreement. Silence. Severine's not happy.
2: I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. So please don't 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 take my silence as agreement.
0: <laughs> we're back to the beginning of the podcast.
2: <laughs> no, I, I'm not unhappy. I just think, even though I can see the point that you are making, Maggie, I am worried that by making it, you know, we're conflating two different issues. And I will leave it at that.
1: Oh well, interesting, interest in topical to. stuff. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I hope somebody we've really we've
0: rambled around. on today. We had a lot of energy <laughs> left, clearly. <laughs>
1: yes well listener i hope you've uh, managed to uh, survive hold sanity together for um bait we've sort of agreed i think to the extent that we agree generally i so it just remains for me to thank the lovely Severine and the lovely tim and the lovely listener for bearing with us again so thank you very much thank you very much and if you've
0: got any comments ideas do email us at unpacking.contract.law at gmail.com. Bye.